All right, take your Bibles. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We've got to kind of set a baseline here so I know if you're like laughing or responding. So can everybody just say good morning? Yeah, it sounds like you're all at a hostage convention, so great. 1 Peter chapter 3. I am glad you are here this morning. I am uh, glad security was here to check for objects that can be thrown during the message. Just know there are cameras, so if you chuck something, we will find you. First Peter chapter 3, um, yeah, here we go. Let me, let me start it this way. So in the last few weeks, as we've looked through uh, the book of First Peter, uh, what we have found, uh, it really did start with the gospel, which is a great place to start, isn't it? Jesus Christ, God in flesh, came, lived a life we couldn't live, and died the death that we should have died. He took our place willingly on the cross and offered with that sacrifice the, the opportunity at redemption, forgiveness, at full reconciliation with, with the Father. And as we've looked at in the last few weeks, for those of us who have embraced that call, those of us who have come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, we have been called to live differently. We can live differently because Jesus is with us. And we can live differently because Jesus left us an example to follow. And we must live differently because the world is watching. And unfortunately, what the world often sees when they watch us is a people who claim to be the children of God and yet bear no family resemblance whatsoever. So, so why, why would the world ever repent and glorify the Father in heaven if you're never shining your light? And that's what Peter is calling us to. So we've looked at our call through the words of Peter, which is inspired by God, um, to be radical in our civil obedience. It's a little different than what our world is accustomed to. We've looked at the calling in some of our lives to a season of injustice and unfairness. We, we've, we've been reminded that we must continue to do what Jesus did, which is entrust ourselves into the hands of the one just judge who can be trusted. And now Peter, with all of that being his context, keeps going. And so shall we. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles, wearing gold jewelry, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Can't wait till we get to there. <clears throat> You've become her children when you do what is good, and you do not fear any intimidation. So I'll ask first and foremost that you bear with me throughout the entire message. 
Um, it's one thing if you uh, allow me the opportunity to explain Scripture, to apply Scripture, and to explain what Peter is trying to say. You hear it all from beginning to end. You give it a fair hearing. You disagree with it, and you walk away. That, okay, I get that. But if you don't give me a shot to explain Scripture, if you've already shut down when you heard that dirty word submit mentioned, right, then, then that's not helpful. So I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you, just bear with me. I believe that one of the ways we must live differently today is by reclaiming what biblical submission is because it's become um, a straw man that doesn't really exist in Scripture and I think you'll find it encouraging. So here, so let's do a little work at the beginning. We, uh, and I'm going to be moving, so just bear with me. I'm going to be flying. So uh, write fast if you take notes. <laughs> um, he starts by saying this, in the same way. So when Peter says, in the same way, in verse 1, he's referring to something that has come earlier. He's tying you back to something before. So you have to establish what it is that he's tying you back to. What he's tying you back to is chapter 2, starting in verse 21, when it's talking about Jesus. It says, Jesus has left you an example that you should follow in his steps. He didn't commit sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So, so what you see, wives, in the same way, as just as Jesus did, entrust yourselves into the hands of the one who can be trusted. The principle here is, if you hand yourself over to God, the one just judge who can be trusted, no matter what the situation is, and you act with integrity, and you, you obey him, you do all those things, you leave the consequences in God's hands. And when the consequences are in God's hands for your right behavior, there's a lot of joy to reap. So that's first. Women, wives particularly, follow the example of Jesus. Please, if you hear nothing else, and I hope you hear a lot more, but if you hear nothing else, please understand, Scripture knows nothing of the wallflower woman who does not pursue Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ as a woman, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ as a woman, the command is just as clear to you as it is to anybody else. Take up your cross and follow him. Women, you understand that, right? Forget this little, I'm going to, every Mother's Day, we, we talk so nice about moms. Father's Day, we beat up the guys. But Mother's Day, it's like, oh, moms are great. No, no, no. This is a hard, difficult scripture. And women, I want you to feel the Spirit working on your heart this morning. Follow the example of Jesus. And then understand the context, okay? I'll refer to it. Peter isn't writing to a group of people who are on their, uh, their second honeymoon, candlelight dinner, sipping wine. That's not the group of people Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to, specifically in this text, wives who have unbelieving husbands. He's addressing marriages that have great tension in them. Nobody can relate to that, right? But what Peter says to those wives isn't unique. He speaks in concert with the rest of Scripture about wives and husbands, and he's calling them to this beautiful, ordinary, normal behavior as a husband, as a wife. So I want to dig into that. There's a pastor out west named Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church who uses this phrase, beautiful conduct, as he looks at this passage. And so uh, he is incredibly gracious and has allowed me to steal his outline for this. 
Um, just the, the words that, that really help guide our understanding in this passage. And, and, and what he's called us to, these wives to, is beautiful conduct. So we need to define beautiful conduct. And you don't want me to define beautiful conduct because it's a one-word definition. The beautiful conduct Peter is talking about is submission. And we've talked about that word all month now. We hate that word. We've, we've given a number of reasons why we don't like that word. Submission is exactly what we've talked about. It means to line up, to, to get into place, to support. But specifically here in this text, there are some nuances to submission that we need to understand. So let's begin this way. What does submission in marriage not mean? What does it not mean? It does not mean that a woman must remain in the home with a man who is abusive because she is being submissive. Please hear that clearly. Never, ever, ever is abuse acceptable. Submission is not for the tormented woman that she just has to, she just has to bear up underneath it and she just needs to, to take it. We are not saying a woman must stay in that situation. I will tell you this as a church, if that comes across our desk, if it comes to our attention and you come to us, we will call your husband to repent after we call the cops. Okay? That is not submission. Submission is not generic. It doesn't mean all women must submit to all men. In this text, it's very clear. Wives, submit to your own husband. This is not spoken to the women to submit to men and therefore take your place of inferiority. There's been some jacked up teaching with that misunderstanding because people have taken this, ripped it out of context and tried to apply it that way. That's not what it means. It's not generic. Submission is not a right that a husband can demand. It's not his right to demand his wife submits to him. It's her duty. It has nothing to do with her husband. More on that in a few minutes. His greatest principle that we were taught, Stephanie and I, during our pre-marriage counseling, is when it comes to your roles in marriage, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands, and when it comes to those roles, mind your own business. Husbands, it's never told for you to, to, to command your wife to submit to you. And wives, it's never said, hey, you tell your husband to let... No, 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 no. You take care of your duty and you do it well. Submission does not mean women, wives in particular, do not engage their brain in their relationship. Husband says we do this, we just do that. No, she doesn't follow him into sin. She's not some dim-witted lady who just sits idly by letting the man of the house do the thinking. That is not submission. In fact... Submission doesn't mean that wives remain silent. She speaks, Proverbs 31, she speaks with wisdom. And people listen. Listen, uh, men, this is, this is going to be really helpful for you. We must get to the place as husbands that we are feeling free to admit that our wives are smarter than us. Mine is, I'm okay with that. So men, just look at your wife right now and just go, I know. Okay, let's move right past it, okay? <laughs> we, we, we know. There, there is, there, this is not a time for her to be, and here, here's, this is a big one, I guess. So, so why is, it's not, submission is not a place of inferiority. Just the very creation event explains that. If you look at creation, what you see is that, that, that what man lacked in relationship, women accomplishes. As, as man looked around to find a satisfactory helper, there was none found. And so what God did was created woman to to satisfy that need. 
It's not a place of inferiority. If you believe that your wife is in a place of inferiority based on Scripture, you have a major theological problem when you try to explain Jesus. Because it says that Jesus willingly humbled himself and submitted himself to the will of the Father. So are you saying that Jesus is inferior? You're not. You're not. Don't don't say that. There's lightning that comes with that. You didn't say that. Okay? It's not the biblical teaching. That is an aberrant teaching. Wives submitting does not mean they're inferior. Submission is, and here you go, I'll repeat this a couple times. Submission is this. Wives are willing to lay aside their rights to imitate the example of Jesus Christ in serving their own husband, even when it's not easy, as an expression of love toward him and obedience toward God. Submission is when wives are willing to lay aside their rights and imitate the example of Jesus Christ in serving their own husbands, even when it's not easy, as an expression of love to him and obedience to God. And what you have to understand is with that beautiful conduct, there is great power. Verses 1 and 2, I'll read them again. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. There is great power that comes with this beautiful conduct. Remember, Peter is speaking to wives who have unbelieving husbands. It can also be easily applied to wives whose marriages are under an unreal amount of stress and tension because their husbands are fools, okay? And, and in that relationship, he says, what I want you to do is submit to your husband. And so respond in, such a, in that type of relationship with biblical submission is, is hugely powerful. It says, a wife who lives this way can see her husband changed. Now, let me be clear. Peter doesn't say she can see her husband changed because she continues to preach, teach, and nag him about his failures and flaws. It says very clearly, he may be one without a word. Peter says your life can be lived in such a way that your husband takes notice. And the Spirit can use you as an instrument of change in your husband's life. They can be won by your pure, reverent lives. That word pure means pure, without defect, innocent, um, reverent. Now, that's an interesting word. In some versions of the Bible, it says pure um, lives that are accompanied by fear. Some have taken that to mean the wife is supposed to act in fear towards her husband. That's not what this means. Okay? Accompanied by fear is the word phobos. That means to fear. But every other time Peter uses the word phobos, he's talking about it in relationship to your relationship with God. And so what he is saying is this is the, the fear of the Lord. As you, as you live with purity and with fear before God, you are bearing witness of Jesus Christ to your husband. And Peter says they may be one because of this. What Peter's trying to make clear here is this. Your submission to your husband is not motivated by your husband's behavior or his character. Your submission to your husband is motivated by your fear of God. And when your husband sees your strong and confident walk with Jesus Christ, he sees that your first priority is is that God is pleased. There is remarkable power in that. This is not being inferior or second class. This is, this is being called to serve your husband 
by willingly laying aside your rights and imitating the example of Jesus Christ, even when it's not easy, as an expression of love for your husband and obedience to God. So there's great power in that beautiful conduct. What's the nature of this beautiful conduct? What's the nature of this beautiful conduct? Well, well, Peter tells us very clearly, your true beauty is not in your hair care products. It's not in your jewelry. It's not in your clothing. It's not in your cosmetics. Look, verse verse, uh, 3. Let's read those, 3 and 4. He says, don't let your beauty consist of outward things, like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry, but rather what is it? is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So so is this some legalistic ban on, on a certain hairstyle and on wearing jewelry? And we know the women in here all of a sudden like, ooh, take off the bracelets, the rings, mess up your hair, you know. Some traditions actually teach from this passage that, that um, true modesty is, is plain dresses, uncut hair, no makeup, no jewelry. Now, that's not what this text is saying. This text isn't saying the most holy people of Uniontown Bible Church are the women who rolled out of bed, didn't brush their teeth or get out of their PJs and sat on the couch and watched our online thing. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage isn't saying, oh, you braid your hair? You harlot? I mean, that, that's not what this, this passage is saying. That, that those traditions completely rip this out of where it's supposed to be. If you, if, you, if you take this text logically the way they take it, which they, they over-literalize it and, and don't apply any context to it, if you were to take it that way, you don't land on don't do your hair, don't wear makeup, and only wear simple clothing. You don't land there. You know where you land? You don't wear any clothing. Except for masks. You can keep your mask on. <laughs> Lots of jokes there. I'll keep moving. Um, <laughs> so, so here, please understand this. Okay, God is not against physical beauty. He created it, and I praise God for that. Don't you? I praise God. I'm going to be careful, but personal. I praise God that I have the opportunity to to look my beautiful wife in the face and be amazed with awe that she would have fallen asleep long enough to agree to marry me. There's there's, there's a beauty in my wife that I enjoy that nobody else gets to enjoy. There's there's beauty in the physical, and God created that, and we're supposed to enjoy that as one of his gifts. He's not saying, get rid of all physical beauty. What he's saying is, don't put your hope in external beauty. Don't be defined by external appearances. True beauty is not found in how you do your hair or what clothing you have in your closet, or what accessories you wear. True beauty is when a woman puts her hope in God by focusing on the imperishable qualities that Peter mentions right here, a gentle and a quiet spirit. So, what is a quiet spirit? Okay, don't worry. It has nothing to do with volume or being timid. Peter's not saying one of those imperishable qualities that God really likes is the introverted ladies. That's not what he's saying. The quiet spirit is the one that is intentionally pursuing peace instead of war. Think about the lake and the quiet lake, the still water. That's the approach of the woman who has a quiet spirit. It's the wife who knows 
that she can both start and end an argument in a single word, but chooses not to. It's, it's the wife who chooses not to light her husband up, although she knew she could. The quiet spirit chooses peace. So wives, is that a characteristic of you in your relationship with your husband? Are you spending enough time entrusting your soul into the hands of the just judge that you can intentionally and willingly be at peace? How about gentle spirit? Gentle spirit isn't weakness, not in the least. I think, I think last week it was uh, described perfectly. Gentle spirit is Jesus in the garden. As Jesus stands in the garden, the soldiers come to arrest him. Jesus speaks a word and they all fall on their rear ends. Well, Jesus could have done far more than that. And they're all dead. But he didn't demonstrate his full power. The idea of gentleness is meekness. Strength is there, but it's not strength that is flaunted. It's not used for the good of the person who has the strength, but instead that strength is restrained for the good and the well-being of those around them. (laughs) Wives, you are strong. You know how you can dismantle your husband. Maybe for you it's even with just a glance. Will you choose to use that for your own selfishness? Or will you work to restrain it in order to demonstrate true submission and a gentle spirit towards your husband? That's, that's beautiful conduct. That's what submission looks like. And, and, and if you need a picture of it, I'm a picture guy. I always need a picture. Well, Peter gives us a great picture of it right here. It says in verse 5, In past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So so what is is happening here is Peter's giving us a model of this beautiful conduct. He says, look at the the, the, the holy women who put their hope in God. Their true beauty wasn't in their appearances or the externals. Their true beauty was that hope, that, that sure conviction that God would bring about what he promised, even though at times... Your husband's an idiot. You catch that? Because I mean it. As a husband, I can admit that. When you read through the Old Testament and and see some of the men that some of these ladies were married to, there is no other way to describe them other than they're just idiots. But the hope that these women continued to place in God was astonishing because even in that Idiocy, 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 there's the word. Even in that idiocy, the, the women were able to continue to cling to God and hold onto him and, 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 and continue to bear example of what a gentle and quiet spirit is. And then, and then Abraham, oh, I'm sorry, Peter goes to talk about Abraham and Sarah, Sarah in particular, and he mentions this one phrase, tiny phrase, that has caused people's minds to explode repeatedly throughout history. Just like when Sarah called Abraham Lord. Let's talk about Sarah for a minute. She was, when it comes to external beauty, stunning. She had to have been. You know how I know? Because when she was 65 years old, Pharaoh wanted her for his harem. Um, Later, it happened again with Abimelech wanted to take Sarah into his own home. 
And Abraham had Sarah lie again and say, no, you just say you're my sister. You say you're my sister. It actually doesn't protect Sarah, right? Did that protect Sarah? No. It sacrificed Sarah, but it protected Abraham. And Abimelech said, I will take Sarah as my wife because she's hot. She's 90. She had to have been stunning, right? So, so, so Peter says true beauty isn't in the externals. The true beauty of, of Sarah was found in her quiet and gentle spirit. Think about her life. Sarah, not just Abraham, but Sarah also was called out of her homeland, out of comfort. Not just Abraham, but Sarah left that home not knowing where she would go. Sarah, not, not just Abraham, but Sarah was told she would have a baby at 90 years old. Sarah was married to and offered this gentle, quiet submission to a very imperfect man. This man who told her to lie and say that she was his sister to protect him, not her, and yet she stuck with her imperfect man as an imperfect woman. Please hear that. Submission is not about perfection. It's about progress. And as soon as you set the bar at perfection... You will fail. That's just how it works. Sarah wasn't perfect. Sarah was the one that, 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 that um, made the decision to have Abraham sleep with her handmaid to have a child. And then later in that story, you see how Sarah treats her handmaid and that child. It is horrible. It is disgusting. But, so, so it demonstrated that, that Sarah was still not perfect. She was anything but perfect. But in regards to her relationship with her husband, she is the model of beautiful conduct. And the greatest example of it is when she called her husband Lord. All right, boys. So this afternoon when you're at home, I want all of you to look at your wife and say, Honey, this week, I would love if you would call me Lord. I'm sure she's going to call you something but it probably won't be Lord. There's been so much confusion with that. It's like, so, so why, what, what, that word, I mean, that's a, that's a heavy word. That's a big word. I mean, why, and, and, and there's some reality with some of the explanations of it, but we missed the point, okay? So the, first of all, you do need to understand the word. The word is a term of great respect, of great honor. It's not a worship term in this context, but it's a great respect, great honor. It's love, it's care, it's concern. It is a term of endearment that Sarah uses for Abraham when she calls him Lord. But the point isn't exactly what the word means. The bigger point is, when did she call him that? Only happened one time in Scripture. Genesis chapter 18. If you remember the story, it goes like this. Even though God had promised them a son, Abraham and Sarah were still childless. and They were well past the age that they could have children. And the Lord appears to Abraham and he tells him, I'm going to swing by again in about a year. And when I come by in about a year, your wife, Sarah, is going to have a son. If you remember, Sarah is standing in the door of her tent listening and she overhears that crazy, audacious promise. And it says she laughs to herself, Genesis 18, 12. And she says, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I still have this delight? That was a comment to herself in the tent 
away from everybody. And you know that because the next verse, the Lord says, why did Sarah just laugh? Is it too impossible for me to have her have a child at that age? And Sarah pops out of the tent and says, I didn't laugh. And the Lord says, oh, but you did. So Sarah made this comment referring to Abraham as Lord when she was alone and under her breath. I think that I can make the case that what we mutter under our breath is often closer to the truth than what we say out loud. And what came out of Sarah when she was alone, muttering under her breath was, when she referred to her husband, (laughs) that man that I love, my protector, my provider, yes, he is an idiot at times, but he's my idiot. My husband my guy, my man. Peter says, you want to see what this beautiful conduct looks like? Look at this woman who's behind the door of a tent who could have called her husband a million other names and it would have been accurate. But instead, what oozed out of her was honor, respect, and love. So women, there you go. Follow her example. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up, and this is why, a couple reasons, first of all. Um, first, your homework, wives and husbands, have a great afternoon talking about this. That's your homework, talk about it for a while. Uh, I'm going to pray, and when I say amen, Audrey, we'll fire that. When I say amen at the end of prayer here, um, I, I convinced uh, the most brilliant, and certainly the most beautiful woman I know, probably the one who is the most camera shy in the world, to do an interview with me and kind of explain some of the applicational aspects of submission. I think what you will find in this interview will be more helpful to you than anything I could ever say. And so I'm going to close. I'm going to pray for us. I'll pray for you, wives. I'll pray for you, husbands, that you know when to keep your mouth closed particularly because next week is your week. And I'm going to pray for our wives in particular that they, that they don't feel crushed, but encouraged that submission isn't about perfection, but pro- progress. Let's pray. Father, thanks for what Jesus has done for us. Thank you. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you that it is finished. Thank you that we're healed by his wounds. Thank you that we have this great example before us. Thank you that we can trust you as we lean on you. Lord, we need your help as we wrestle with passages like this. I I pray that our lives would be so changed by Jesus Christ and what he has done for us that every relationship we have, including our marriages, become opportunities to live obedient, gospel-filled lives. Help us in the areas we need help. Encourage us in the areas we need encouragement. Father, most importantly, fill our eyes full of the example of Jesus Christ. It's in his good and wonderful name I pray. Amen. All right, so here's the interview I promised. The most excited person in the room is Stephanie, without a question. <laughs> so, Stephanie, let me ask you a question. How's that? <laughs> um, why do you think some people would be surprised to find out your actions 
are considered submissive. I, I guess another way to ask it is how do you defy the stereotype of what submission looks like uh, to our culture? Not to the Bible, but to our culture. Um, I guess by... Well, when you're looking at the biblical definition of submission, that does defy what our culture thinks in and of itself. So if I am... Um, that my, submission is my choice to... Um, to obey God in that way, um, to it is my, I'm doing it for God and not for you. Those things are not how submission is explained at all in our culture. And so um, I think just that's how it's countercultural. Mm-hmm. Following God is countercultural. So yeah. it's, um, so I guess when, if somebody would ask that or when I'm talking to people about that, all the time at the grocery store. <laughs> um, <laughs> I um, anyway, I cracked myself up. And <laughs> That's perfect. That's great. That's great. The, the, you can't think anymore. It's fine. So, so day in day out, what does what does submission look like in our home? Um, it looks like it looks like me messing up a lot. It looks like um, apologizing a lot. It looks like um, me choosing to be okay with the decision that you make when we've had the conversation and you come to a different conclusion. Um, it looks like, um, I, and the positive, that all sounds the real negative part, but the, the, and the, the self sacrificing part of it but the positive part is when we work together and I know that you're leading well which I know is next week but um and I can trust you that you've made that decision it makes it easier for me to relinquish the um the feelings in my heart that I need to have my way um it also um yeah the the, the positive part is, honestly, sometimes I can be like, hey, God, I did my best and he did what he wanted anyway, so. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Not my fault. <laughs> um, but there is some freedom in, in that. There's a there's part of that that I'm glad that I'm not the one that I has to make the final call before the Lord. Um, that my responsibility is to do that, my part, which is to um, express to you what God's laid on my heart as brother in Christ and as my husband and to let you make the final decision. I'm not always good with you making the final decision, but mm. there are times where it's freeing because again, that part. I'm yeah. So, so would you say, um, active submission can be scary at times for our women? Yes. I, I do think it can be scary at times because it's a you're trusting somebody else for um, I mean it, it starts off in the little things of you know like if there's a call about where you're gonna go for dinner and and he really wants to make that you really want to make that decision you know that can be a little submission where it, it's just not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things but those big ones um, are harder. Those, those big ones that you're really worried about are, are much harder. But again, it's, I don't know, God calls us to do this for him. Mm. And so 
It's a it's an act of if he's called me to do that for him, then I have to trust because it's his way and his plan that this is what's best, and that's and he's going to take care of the results. Right. Right. And he's gonna, you know, he's gonna do what he's gonna do, and that's gonna be what's best. Hmm. Good. I had another question, but I forgot. I'm wearing off on you. <laughs> um, is there anything that, um, if you could talk to our wives, particularly our young wives, is there anything about submission that you'd be like, just just keep this one thing in mind when it comes to your role in marriage as a wife? I think that the biggest thing is to remember it's not for your husband mm. it's for God he it's we're supposed to be doing it for him like in other passages when he talks about how we work hard it's not for your employer it's not for whoever it is in the middle of it's you know when you're mothering it's not for your children mm. it, it is but it's not mm. it's for him and so when the things are hard and when they don't make sense I'm I just have to remember I'm doing it for God so that even when it doesn't feel good, I can know that he's looking at me pleased because I'm doing what he's asked me to do even when it doesn't feel good. Yeah, that's really good. So um, the big question of the day is, this week, will you call me Lord all week? <laughs> she hasn't listened to the message yet. She doesn't know. So I'll take like that as Sarah? a no. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take that as a no. <laughs> And I'll escape without her calling me another name, and that'll be a win. So. Oh, I'll call you Lord. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, you did good. You made it. Love you. Love you.